Arguably the biggest game in the history of the NBA takes place tonight as the Celtics look to make history with an epic comeback versus the Heat. I'll discuss how we got here, including the wild ending that pushed this series to a Game 7. The Dallas Stars are mounting a similar comeback as they have a Game 6 in their building tonight after being down 0-3 themselves. Could they force a Game 7? Baseball hits the one-third mark of the season as I'll get into where the pretenders and contenders lie and wait. Why aren't there a full slate of games on this holiday? DeAndre Hopkins gets released. Where does he land? Le'Veon Bell getting high before games. Do I really have to talk about this? A bad men's draw as the French Open is underway and your Indy 500 winner is... The final podcast of May and we commemorate our fallen soldiers on this holiday Monday. It's all coming up. But first, this message. Jay Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest i hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits as we remember those who have sacrificed and served our country to protect our freedom on this day and usher in the unofficial beginning of summer i deliver the last podcast on this final monday of the month with june creeping up on the horizon as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels for my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and what weather that we've had here in the Northeast, I understand people outside probably don't even care whether you're in the western part of this country, or somewhere overseas, or maybe in the South Pacific, I get it, who cares what's happening in New York, but considering that the weather has been magnificent, it's been sunny, not a cloud to be found here over this Memorial Day weekend, And I guess the same could be said up in Boston, because what we've experienced and what we've witnessed here over the last few days, in particular Saturday night, boy, there's been so much that has taken place in the NBA, especially with this series that you know the league, the front office, as well as Adam Silver, they are doing handstands, backflips, somersaults, you name it. Because think about this, a week ago today, we were talking about a Game 4 in Miami where the Celtics did save face, and they salvaged a little bit of pride as they pushed their series back to Boston for a Game 5. But a lot of people thought that even with that win, and when we saw the Nuggets that night beat the Lakers to sweep them out of the postseason, 
and they're still on ice as they're trying to prepare best to get themselves ready for game one, whether it's in their building against Miami or in Boston come Thursday night. But for the NBA to think that to have this play out the way we've seen it unfold and for them to have a game seven with not only history, but as I mentioned in the outset, the biggest game that this league may ever see. Now, I understand it's not a finals game. It's not as if this was 0-3 in a finals where you had the team come back from the dead and now you have a game seven for a championship. And we can look at how history has been unkind to the previous three teams that have made it to this point, whether it's the 51 Knicks against Rochester, which again, not many people that are alive who watched that game or even followed the game because you did see some black and white footage, but who knows if it was even on TV at that time. But then you look at the 94 Denver Nuggets when they pushed the Utah Jazz to a seventh game when they were down 0-3. And remember, they were down 0-2 at the time when it was best of five to the Seattle Supersonics, won that series, and they were ready to do back-to-back. But they fell short in Utah. And then in 2003, where the Portland Trailblazers were down 0-3 and came all the way back before losing a Game 7 in Dallas. And those are the only other three times in the history of the sport where we've had this type of deficit in the playoffs to where now it's evened up And in this case, it's for a chance to go to an NBA final. And that's why it's big because the other games were in earlier series. Where here, it's a date with Denver in the final round. And for a league that we thought was going to be hung out to dry here over the last eight or nine days, that Miami and Denver was a foregone conclusion, that there was no way that Boston would even get back in the series considering how they performed there in Game 3 in just a putrid god-awful effort, and when we pick up where we left off on the podcast there Thursday, and we were talking about a Game 5 in Boston, where you had the Celtics in a rocking chair game, a shock when you think about it, because I thought that even with them getting back to Boston, a team that I've said time after time, you can't trust, we know the talent is there, we know that they have a pedigree, granted they haven't won the whole thing, but... I for sure didn't think that this team had it in them to have a type of game where you could pretty much put your feet up on your coffee table and have a bit of a laugher. Now, I understand it ended 110-97, so it seemed a lot closer than what the final score indicated. But when you get off to a 35-20 first quarter lead and you pretty much sustain that throughout the course of the game, yes, at least for a Celtic fan on that one night, you could exhale. But there was a little bit of danger. And I know I mentioned this on the podcast Thursday where I thought that the... Celtics would sweat out a game five and I had full trust in them to win on the road in a game six as we've seen them over the last two years with this group win big games on the road. And even with that rocking chair performance, after the game I thought to myself, this doesn't bode well for Saturday night. Only because if this was a scrappy street fight as we've seen these two teams play over the last two years to where I would think, okay, Game six would be a toss-up in that regard because if it was back and forth and it seemed like it was just a game where it was going to come down to the final couple of possessions or even the final seconds of a game and the Celtics prevailed, where we could say, all right, well, they got that game out of their system. Now let's see them go to Miami and win another road test, gut check to see if they could bring this back to Boston for a game seven. And as it was, that's how it played out. But... There were a lot of similarities from Game 6 this year to Game 7 last year. Now, obviously the end result was 
the Celtics winning, but certainly not in the way, shape, or fashion that it was in a Game 7 in Miami to go to an NBA Final. And let me just refresh your memory when it comes to that. Three and a half minutes to go, Game 7 last year, Celtics had a 98-85 lead. The Heat came storming back, and if you recall at 98-96, Jimmy Butler has the ball open court as he's dribbling, and I thought at the time... I get it, he was trying to play hero ball, but I thought he should attack the basket. He had Al Horford in front of him and maybe get an end one or at least shoot two free throws because we all know Jimmy Butler is a very good free throw shooter as I'll explain and as of course you saw there on Saturday night. But instead, he opted for the three-point shot again to put their team in the NBA Finals and as we all know, hit the front of the rim and that was it and the Celtics crawl out of Miami albeit with a... Eastern Conference Championship in tow, but still, you had to sweat, bleed, scratch, fight, and claw just to get to the finish line, and that's what they did. And then on Saturday night, as we fast forward almost a year later, to where the Celtics had a 98-88 lead with about four and a half minutes to go, and a 191 lead a little bit over three minutes to go. And what you saw there were shot after shot, and Joe Mazzulla, I have to give him credit, I thought he coached a very good game here as he was able to get some matchups that were in his favor, trying to get Caleb Martin out of foul trouble or get him in foul trouble to the point where I thought he was actually going to be tossed from the game where Jalen Brown went to the basket and this is after Caleb Martin got his fifth foul and I guess they called it on somebody else, which I was appalled. But between that and attacking that zone the way they did in certain parts of that fourth quarter, I thought to myself, wait a minute, Joe Mazzulla's having an awakening here? But then we look at those final couple of minutes and there was a possession there and off the top of my head, I don't remember what the score was. But Jimmy Butler, who shot terrible in the game and had a basket and an end one on Jason Tatum and Tatum didn't even touch him. And you could even argue that Tatum blocked his shot where I thought Missoula should have thrown the challenge flag to see whether or not that that could be overturned. And as it was, he didn't do that. Got the N1 and the free throw. And then now, let's get to it. Two instances. At 101-100, there was a scenario where Duncan Robinson was wide open for a three. And I'm going to quote exactly what I said at that point. When that ball went up, and it had to be, what, less than 20 seconds to go at this point. When that ball went in the air, I said to myself, here comes the nut punch. Here it comes. This is where I go to my knees because Duncan Robinson, as wide open as he was, there on the left side of the perimeter and how it hit off the back of the rim. Boy, you talk about dodging a missile as a Celtic fan. And as it was, Marcus Smart then has to shoot two free throws and you figure, hey, if he gets both of these, you're never going to lose the game. You're going to only probably get tied at that point. And of course, of course, you could lose considering that if you get a three-point and they foul and then you have a four-point play, oh, geez. But besides that, and then Duncan Robinson had another wide-open look at, the, at a three as well, so he missed two big shots there down the stretch. But then now Marcus Smart makes one of two, so it's 102-100. And then now you had a scenario where in the corner where Jimmy Butler was being guarded by Al Horford, shocker there if you bring back the play last year, And then you had a scenario where as Butler's going up, which of course he looks like he's about to shoot, but then the ball, although he was fouled, and the ball pops loose, for whatever the reason, Mazzola, and I understand he had to throw a challenge flag there, but what happened was it reset the clock from 2.1 to 3 seconds. 
That's number one. Number two, that would have been a two-shot foul because he wasn't in the act of shooting. But because Missoula threw in that challenge flag and maybe he didn't know the rules, they had a good replay or at least an opportunity to get a full scope of what the replay was. And because of that, they awarded Jimmy Butler three free throws, which was unbeknownst to me at the time. And I was just out of my gourd. Because when you look at the replay and the telecast, Kevin Harlan, who are Reggie Miller and Stan Van Gundy, they didn't explain why that became a three-shot foul. And yes, he was behind the three-point arc, but again, he was not in the act of shooting. Yes, he looked like he was going to go up to shoot the ball, but before he was even able to attempt the shot, the ball popped out, they called the whistle, and because Missoula was... Throwing the challenge flag at that point, and like I mentioned, he should have thrown it a couple of minutes earlier on that Tatum play with Butler. He was awarded those three free throws, and then in cool, calm, and collected fashion, Jimmy Butler sinks all three, and now you have a scenario where three seconds left, 103-102, and I mentioned this on the podcast Thursday, that even if the Celtics lose a tough game, yes, that tooth and nail back and forth, but not to the extent where they had a 10-point lead with four minutes to go and a nine point lead with three minutes to go and then for it to come down to those free throws and then now at 103-102 I said this is it what's going to happen here and then what we saw the inbounds pass from Derek White to Marcus Smart who had a turnaround three and it was halfway down before it popped up and then Johnny on the spot Derek White as well as Jason Tatum attacking the basket but White gets past Max Drews puts it back And when it went through, I said, "Uh, I need to see a replay. I didn't jump for joy. I wasn't ecstatic because there's no way that I was going to expound any energy thinking that we won when during a replay, the red light goes off behind the basket. And then let's say Derek White happens to push the ball through the hoop or release the ball as time expired. Then I would have collapsed to the ground. I'd probably still be laying in the middle of my living room floor just not only astounded, exasperated, and just from the ultimate, as I said a minute ago, nut punch, because that would have been just a brutal loss to take. But as it was, because of the lucky bounce, and that was a, I can't even imagine, because that ball could have went in so many different directions. And it just so happened that because it went halfway down and then popped up, to where it was in the hands of Derek White and all he was able to do was just hit it off the glass and in right before the buzzer went off and it was, I believe, he released it at .2 and off the backboard at .1 before going through. There could be no bigger win and to have that type of sequence play out the way it did, that is going to be a game for the ages. But the Celtics have to seal the deal tonight. Because that will be a footnote if the Celtics don't win. Not only coming down from 0-3, but that shot will be remembered forever if the Celtics don't finish the job tonight. And there's so much to unpack, not only because of the historic nature and what this game is going to mean to the NBA, especially if the Celtics win. Because, as we know, teams that have been in an 0-3 hole in the postseason are 0 and 150. And I told you the other three teams that came all the way back to tie, but never was able to get over the hump. And now you have a scenario where this Celtic team can make history in their building 
which is usually the opposite because generally the team that gets off to a 3-0 series lead is usually the favorite and the one that has home court. And here's a scenario where they have the home court after being down three games in a series. And it's one of those scenarios that you couldn't even make up, especially after what we saw there at the end of game three, how the Celtics just gagged, how they just quit, how there was just no life in this team. And who would have thought that they'd be here at this juncture getting ready to play a game seven? I certainly didn't, and I'm sure everybody in America did. I don't care if you're the most optimistic, outgoing Celtic fan on the planet. There was no way after that abomination you saw there two Fridays ago that they were going to be in this position, me not only talking about this, but just even thinking about a Game 7 to play for an NBA Finals trip. I'd like to meet that person who thought that. Because they didn't give you any feeling, indication whatsoever to think that they were going to play their hearts off and get themselves back to the series, to this point. And one more time, Adam Silver and company, they are doing, who knows what they're doing right now. I'm sure they are just drunk with power and the opposite of what I usually say, the Sauvignon Blanc and the au gratin potatoes with the kale salad went down rather smoothly there late Saturday night. Not only pushing the series to a Game 7, not only getting that closer to an NBA Final because you don't have a five-day layoff between Game 6 and Game 1 of the Finals, but now a three-day layoff after tonight, and then knowing that it's a date with history for the most story franchise, yes, not the Lakers, the Celtics, to be in this predicament, and you know, by any means necessary, and I said this before and I'll say it again, the NBA suits, they have their fingers and eyes crossed, hoping that the Celtics come out of this, not only just for history's sake, but... To have Denver-Boston will be a lot sexier than Denver-Miami. And that's no offense to the Heat. That's no offense to their organization. They have been game. They have been everything. And that's the other side of this. As much as I've talked about the Celtic side and how it's been euphoric and how it's been just beyond unpredictable and just wildly out of nowhere. What is that team in the other locker room going through right now? And they've said all the right things saying that, well, hey, we play for a game seven. The first six games don't matter. We have a chance to still get to a final. And that's all Spolstra. He's trying to deflect everything off of the players and put it just squarely on this one game. Nobody's going to remember that they were down 0-3 if we win this game, blah, blah, blah. And that's what a good coach does. And even Jimmy Butler saying that it's all right in front of us, that they're going to follow my lead, that as long as I play well, and he was awful in the game. Now, down the stretch, he delivered and even tried to say one more stop, which they didn't get, and that was just the luck of a bounce. So you can't kill the Miami Heat on that play. Yes, maybe you could look at Strews to follow your man to the basket and maybe just try to, I understand you don't want to even touch him because if you get a loose ball foul there, would they even blow the whistle? Probably not. They would probably get the home call or the non-home call at that point. But here they are. And this is a team that is dangerous despite the fact that they may be crestfallen and they may think that to a man that they won't even admit it but the series could have been lost there Saturday night in Miami and I don't know how this game's going to play out to be honest with you because I, one more time I don't trust this Celtic team now I would think it could be a scenario similar to what we saw in the previous series but again Philly's makeup is the opposite spectrum of the Miami Heat's makeup and 
when we look at what the Heat have done here throughout the course of this postseason and the last few postseasons, you can never count them out. And the one thing that I fear is that what we saw there in not only just game six, but early on at home in Boston during games one and two where the Celtics had sizable leads and then the Heat erased those to where they came out victorious. Now you would think that garden building is going to be rapid. They're going to be just crazed. But remember, game seven in 2018, and I understand it was LeBron James when they lost to the Cavs and it was a younger group there. Jason Tatum was a rookie. Jalen Brown was in his second year. Al Horford, that was his last year before he went to Philly. But it's interesting because this team has been together throughout it all. And now that they got life and the game is in their building, you would expect them to win. And I would think deep in my gut that that's going to be the case. But just like I said on Thursday, and I'll say it one more time, my head and heart are going to overtake what my gut tells me. And even though the gut is usually right, but we'll just have to wait and see and watch this play out here tonight, 8.30, which I'm sure the rating for this game is going to be For TNT, astronomical, you would think. And I hope everybody's going to be watching. Because, one more time, the last time we had a scenario like this was 20 years ago. And nobody even thought that Portland would have a chance to win in Dallas. Not that Dallas was a juggernaut by any stretch. But, tonight could be something that, in the 76th year of this league's history, we have never seen. And that, my friends, is the beauty of sports. You cannot get that theater made up in any way, shape, or form, whether it's on Broadway, whether it's TV, movies, etc. What you saw there the other night, does it go down as a classic game? I can't say it does, but it certainly had a classic ending. And what they do for an encore tonight, we shall see. And one last thing before I move on, the Celtics in this scenario with Elimination games over the last two years, 8-1. and one. If that isn't an impressive stat, I don't know what is. So, let's look to see whether or not that streak will continue. Especially what they've done here in the postseason. Remember, they lost their elimination game, game six, in the NBA Finals against Golden State. That was their only loss during this run. So, let's see if they can make history tonight as the first team to ever come back from an 0-3 deficit in an NBA postseason. And with that being said, let's talk about the Nuggets real quick because... Their coach, Mike Malone, made a comment, I believe on Friday, when the team finally got back to practicing after beating the Lakers there on Monday, talking about keeping their rhythm has been tough. And to think they're going to have to put themselves on ice for the next three days until either they travel to Boston or stay at home against Miami. And I'm sure they want to stay home. I would think that they have their fingers crossed to know that they'd rather have Miami come west and that this game goes about five overtimes tonight. Because they want to be worn out and just pretty much almost exhausted to the T to where they have to go to the high altitude, to the mile high city and play those first two games this coming Thursday and then on Sunday. But you have to wonder whether or not their team, now they're going to be ready, they're going to be prepared, but they're not going to have any game action for 10 days. So there's going to be a significant advantage for Miami or Boston whomever wins, to where Denver, they may get out of the gate a little bit sluggish. So something to keep in mind, I'll talk about that more on Thursday, but knowing that the coach made those comments there late last week and how that could play a factor, especially in the first game. Once you get past maybe the first half, 
I'm sure the Nuggets will get their bearings, but that's something to keep in the back of your mental Rolodex is to think whether or not that this is going to be more of a psychological and even mental hurdle than it will be physical for the Nuggets when they play that game one come Thursday. And two quick notes. I know that the Bucks hired Adrian Griffin, the former NBA player, Dallas, even with the Celtics later on. He is now your head coach there in Milwaukee. All right, so let's see what he's going to be able to do to try to take a team that is championship made, that is that has their window open still. So some big shoes to fill there with Coach Budenholzer finally getting over the hump there a couple of years ago as we saw. And now let's see what Griffin does once the NBA season, which obviously is not until October, but let's see how he becomes a head coach there where it's a ready-made team. It's not as if he's going to Houston or going to a team that's starting over. So let's see how he does there. And then Phoenix looks to hire either Doc Rivers or even Nick Nurse or a couple of other candidates that they've narrowed it down to four. So I'm sure you're probably going to get word between now and before the finals as to who the new Phoenix Suns coach will be to be on that sideline to overlook the KDs and the Devin Bookers of the world to see if they can get back to a final and finally win it, especially with Durant now in a Phoenix Suns uniform. So that's what I have with the NBA. And now you have a similar situation here in the NHL as I lace up my skates with the Dallas Stars who are also in an 0-3 deficit. And we've seen this movie though in the NHL before over the course of nine decades. Now you have to go way back to 1942 to when this first happened. And I was in a Stanley Cup final where the Maple Leafs beat the Detroit Red Wings 4-3 after being down 0-3. The Islanders in 75, when they were down 0-3 to the Pittsburgh Penguins, they came back and won that series. And then even in recent vintage, in 2010, where you had the Philadelphia Flyers down 0-3 to the Bruins, where they were even down 3-0 in Game 7 in Boston. And they came back and won that game and won that series 4-3. And then in the LA Kings Stanley Cup run 2014, where they were down in the opening series Three love to the San Jose Sharks, and they came back and won that series in seven games. So although, unlike the NBA, where we've never seen this, but in the NHL we have. Now, granted, tonight is a game six in Dallas, which is going to get swallowed up by the NBA, you would think, unless you're a diehard hockey fan. But the Stars were able to bounce back in a game four as they won at home, where Joe Pavelski was the hero, pushing the series to a fifth game up in Vegas, and then you would thought at that point, all right, they got their game, let's see Vegas, who has been very good here in this postseason, be able to punch their ticket to the Stanley Cup Finals to meet up with the Florida Panthers, but that was not the case, as the game was tied two going into the third period, you had two goals separated by a minute and a half by Ty Delandria, who was able to get, what, 10.35, and I think it was 12.02 of the third period, and they were able to hang on and get out of Vegas with a 4-2 win and now sets the stage for tonight where Jamie Benn comes back from his two-game suspension. Remember that cross-check on Mark Stone there in Game 3? So you're going to have Ben back in the mix. I'm sure the building is going to be juiced up. And this is going to be a game, if I'm a Vegas Golden Knight fan or even just a hockey fan, let's see what the Golden Knights are made of. Because if this series goes to seven games, and that could happen. I understand the game is in Dallas. A lot of momentum's on their side. I'm sure they're starting to believe that, hey, we see what's happening in the NBA with the Celtics. Now we're getting a little bit of that magic or a little bit of that juju here on our side. Maybe they're not thinking of the NBA, but of course, with both of these conference finals 
paralleling against one another, you would think that maybe they would hear what's going on or what's happening. So I'm sure they're trying to get whatever pixie dust that the Celtics have gotten here over the last few days. And now that these stars are aligned in their building to push this to a game seven, to me, this was all on Vegas tonight. Because just like I said in previous series with statement games and having teams to win that game that they absolutely have to have, and even though they have the home ice there, which would be Wednesday night in a game seven, but if you're Vegas, this should be a no fooling around, let's jump on them early, let's get out of here with a cool 4-1, 5-2 type game and prepare ourselves for a Stanley Cup final, which will begin on Saturday. Not June 8th, what I saw there on Thursday, which I discussed, and I knew that was way too far off where they have adjusted that, considering that there was no way, and that's what I saw there online, to start that June 8th, if, even if the series would have ended on Wednesday in the Game 7, you'd have to wait eight days before you get to start the Stanley Cup Finals. So that you don't have to worry about. It'll be Saturday. But this is one that I won't be watching because I'll be zeroed in on the Celtic game. But I'll try to flick back and forth the commercials. And if Vegas means business, they go in there and handle their business. Because if they lose this game in, let's say, a 4-2 type game that you saw the other night, and I don't care if they lose in 20 overtimes tonight. That's going to speak loudly as to where this team may be come Wednesday night if there is a Game 7. Because then all the pressure is going to be on them. And even though the game's going to be in their building and their fans that have been around for five years and they've had cup fever before, but now you have a Stars team that has had a very good regular season and a very good postseason. And now a lot of that momentum, as I said, and that adrenaline is in the Stars locker room. And I'm sure to a man, they're thinking, boys, let's push this back to Vegas because if that's the case, it's a coin flip. Anything could happen. So to me, this is more on Vegas tonight than it is on Dallas. If Dallas loses, even if it's a one-goal game or if they get blown out, which for hockey's sake, a 4-1-5-2 game this deep into the postseason would be considered a blowout, or if they get completely outplayed, all right, they ran out of gas. You wouldn't like it, You would hope that they would show up in their building to push it to a Game 7. But if that's the case, you live with it. But to me, this is squarely on the Golden Knights tonight and how they perform and come out of this. Whether it's victorious, whether they lose, how they lose, how they win. And let's see what that means for them moving forward after this game tonight. All right, now as I lace up my cleats, get in the batter's box and talk a little baseball here on this Memorial Day. And the first thing I got to say right off the bat... How is it that the schedule makers, whomever they may be, do not put a full slate of Major League games, so that would be 15 games throughout the course of the entire landscape, and how there are not one, not two, not three, but four games that aren't going to be played, which means that eight teams aren't playing baseball, including my New York Mets. Now, maybe they need the day off, considering how bad they were in Colorado over the weekend, giving up runs left and right. And as we all know, that ballpark is like playing in a pinball machine. But how is it that we don't have a full slate of games here on this Memorial Day holiday? That should be automatic, and that would be the same for Labor Day and even the 4th of July when it falls on a Monday. How these teams aren't playing is an absolute joke. This is the jump off of summer. This is where all the teams should be playing. And I don't want to hear collectively bargain. I don't want to hear... No, 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 no. This is a day where everyone should be playing baseball. So for 
four games, eight teams to not play today is an absolute joke. So that's one thing I had to get off my chest here before I get started with baseball. And when we look at the past weekend, as I highlighted there on Thursday, there were a few series that were of note that put your attention and your radar up. And that was the Dodgers visiting Tampa to play the Rays, which you had some wild games there. Tampa winning two out of three, including yesterday. That was a wild affair where the Rays had a big lead and then the Dodgers came all the way back before getting a run late to win 11 to 10 as they win two out of three in their 2020 bubble World Series rematch. Then you had the Phillies and Braves play a four-game set where no harm, no foul was split down the middle 2-2. But you did have Craig Kimbrell reach the 400 save plateau in his career and he did it back in the organization that he grew up in. As we all know, came up in Major League Baseball as an Atlanta Brave, so that meant a lot to him. As well as Zach Wheeler, who is from that area, strikes out 12 in a dominant performance there on Saturday before losing yesterday 11-4 on Sunday Night Baseball. So you had that series, which was one to pay attention to, and then you had the Phillies coming to New York to play the Mets for the next three days. Not today, of course, but starting tomorrow. And then you had the Padres playing the Yankees to where the Padres win Friday night, and then the last two days went to the Yankees to where they won in 10 on Saturday And then yesterday, we're able to get a big inning out of the Yankee offense. And they ended up winning 10-7. A lot of high-scoring games this weekend. The aforementioned games of Colorado between the Mets and Rockies. You had that Tampa-Dodger game yesterday that was high-scoring. So you had a bunch of games that there was plenty of offense and a lot to go around throughout the course of this weekend. But those are the only three series that, to me, were of any note. And as we go into the Memorial Day week, or really with the holiday being today, and as we get to that one-third threshold of the Major League Baseball season, we could take a 30,000-foot view of where we're at here, and we know that it's very top-heavy, and we're probably going to talk about this, whether it be the 4th of July or maybe the All-Star break, I'll save it for then, and then as we get to Labor Day, which hopefully comes by in another six months, because as we all know, these summers go by in a snap. But when we look at the landscape of baseball and where we're at we know that there are teams that look like they're going to be I'm not going to say in cruise control but you know they're going to be there when it's all said and done obviously Tampa you would think not to say they're going to run away with the division they're only ahead of the Orioles as currently constituted by three in the loss but four overall you would think a couple of teams are going to come out of the AL East maybe even three teams but you would think The AL West, you'll have two teams, a division winner, and then maybe the Astros, or if Texas continues to play well, they'll be a wild card team. The AL Central is going to have the division winner, and that's it. And as it is, the Tigers have played well. The Guardians have not. The Twins have been just treading water, a game above 500. But in the American League, we know it's going to be Tampa, Baltimore, the Yankees. I'll throw in the Red Sox and Blue Jays. Now, the Blue Jays, they've really been in a funk here over the last couple of weeks, but you would think they'd right in the ship and they'll be in the mix when it comes to the wild card when it's all said and done. So any one of those teams, now the Red Sox have to get pitching if they're going to be alive in this race. Now it's way too early to start talking about wild cards and pennant chases and things of that nature. But again, this is your 30,000 foot view here as we get to this one big juncture of the baseball season. But we would have to include the five American League East teams The Central, who knows? If the Tigers and Guardians hang around, 
They could win a division, but maybe with the Twins and what they've done, and maybe if they get some reinforcements by the deadline late July, you would think that they would be the team that comes out and will represent that division. And then out West, it's going to be... I got to throw in the Mariners too. I forgot about them only because when you have Texas, Houston, who has played well, and they have Altuve back, and let's see what they do here now as we get into the summertime and deep into the dog days... But Seattle's another team that we have to keep in mind. The Mariners, we know they have good starting pitching. Their lineup doesn't have a lot of length, but they got a couple of thumpers there. And they have a big series with the Yankees coming to town here to start off your Memorial Day week. So that's one that, although they're on the West Coast, but we'll see how Seattle fares against the Yankees, who have played well. And we have to throw them in there. So overall with the American League, I know the AL Central, it's just going to be one team, but with everybody pretty much mediocre and average, it could be Twins, Tigers, Guardians you have to pay attention to throughout the summer. Now, are they going to do anything in October? You would think not, but those three teams are going to be in the mix just for the division. And then I already mentioned the AL East, and you also have to include Seattle with Texas and Houston as far as who's going to come out of that. Now, we know one of the teams is going to win a division. They're going to have home field in that wild card round but are you going to get the Astros are you going to get the Mariners or even the Rangers as a wild card so those are the teams that we're going to look at right now other than that forget about the White Sox forget about Kansas City obviously the Oakland A's they're going to eclipse the 62 Mets they're on a pace to win 30 games and the Mets were 41-20 put that in perspective and the Mets who have been the Low watermark when it comes to awful all-time losing seasons in all sports. Not even just baseball. But the A's right now are looking to take not only one beer, but two beers and chug them down simultaneously to say, we're going to own that record, proudly or unproudly. And I would think unproudly, considering that the team is going to be moving to Vegas in the next few years. But obviously, we don't have to worry about them. And then the Angels, I know they're hovering around 500. They're two games over. But do you really trust them when it's all said and done? So I'm not even going to put them in, and maybe I should throw them in just for grins and giggles, but I think the Angels will fold when it's all said and done, and I understand they brought up a big pitching prospect, Ben Joyce. Let's see what he does there, as the Angels need all the pitching that they could get to try to keep themselves in this race. And then the National League, I know the Marlins have played well above what a lot of people have expected, and this is with Sandy Alcantara pitching awful. He's 2-5 and five with an ERA almost 5. And this is your reigning NL Cy Young Award winner. And to think, for them to be two games over 500, and I haven't looked at their schedule overall, but I know there's going to come a point where they're going to play a lot of, not even division games, because we all know the schedule is balanced now. It's not unbalanced as it was last year and years prior to that. But they haven't faced a lot of the tough teams on their schedule in both of the leagues, so... You got to give it up. They've done a great job. Skip Schumacher, their first-year manager. Are they going to hang around? I'm going to say no, but considering here they are, and with their ace not pitching anywhere close to his defending Cy Young award-winning self, that's a decent sign. The Pirates, that's a team we've talked about here over the first couple of months, and they've been able to tread water. Now, the Brewers have not played well either because you would think after that great start by the Pirates, that they've leveled off and that the Brewers would actually have a 2-3 or maybe even 4-game lead at this point. But they're only separated by one in the loss and one and a half overall. So does that mean that the Pirates may hang around here 
throughout the course of the summer unless the Brewers are going to take off. And that's another team that has very good pitching, but their lineup is eh, a lot to be desired. Now you have the Cardinals, who are six in the loss, and based on their pedigree and track record, you would think that even after them bottoming out at one point where they went to Fenway, what were they, 12 and, I want to say 12 and 24, and they swept Boston up in Fenway, and since then they played pretty well to where they're still six games under 500, but considering that where they were and where they're at now, not to say they're, they're within striking distance, but again, we're only at Memorial Day. Let's see where they're at come 4th of July in the All-Star break, and maybe they're a game or two back. So the AL Central and NL Central kind of mirror one another as pretty much going to be one team coming out of that division to make it into the tournament come October. Out West, it looks like you're going to have Dodgers. Now, do the Diamondbacks hang around? Is there a game behind in the loss to LA? The Padres, they have been putrid and have underperformed and you wonder whether or not it's going to click there in San Diego and if Bob Melvin is going to have to walk the plank when it's all said and done. The Giants, they're ahead of them in the division. And the Padres, they're going to be a big story in the National League on whether or not they're going to have a big run in them. And we all know there's still two-thirds of a season to be played. But you have to wonder whether or not this is going to click for this team. With all these imports and all these extended contracts and a lot of the egos. And you just have a lot. And that's with four guys that are in the field in Machado, Tatis Jr., Soto and Bogarts and Bogarts comes across the guy that probably doesn't pay attention to all that but we know Tatis Jr. he's a lightning rod for controversy Soto he has fallen off since his days in Washington Machado just got the new contract and understandably so considering he was second in the MVP but he's he a guy that is going to rally the troops when the chips are down and when they bottom out here and then you have Bogarts who just got there and I'm sure he's just happy to be in Southern California and he's getting his money and he's got titles from his days in Boston, but is this team going to click? And then in the National League, you have the Mets, also the Phillies as well. Phillies haven't been able to get on track considering that they are the defending National League champs and the Mets are the Mets. Even when they had that five-game winning streak, what happens? They lose two out of three in Chicago and two out of three in Colorado. And now they're back at 500 at the 54 game mark and with the way it's going is this team going to be 81 and 81 so National League to encapsulate Braves to me they're going to win the division they're already 5 games in the loss against Miami I think they're going to be in cruise control unless they get some major injuries and they're going to get Mike Soroka back he's going to pitch for the first time since 2020 so that's one guy that the Braves are going to welcome with open arms considering that Max Freed I don't even think Freed has come back yet from that forearm strain. So getting Soroka back is going to be a huge boost. But when it's all said and done, Atlanta, I have to say the Mets and Phillies just based on their personnel. Miami, I can't say that. Because I could see come July 4th, this team is going to be to the back of the pack there in the National League East. So I'm not going to give them any dap. Although I got to give them credit to this point, as I mentioned. The Pirates... I'm only going to give it to them because the Brewers have not been able to differentiate themselves from the rest of the pack there in the NL Central. So I'm going to give you the Pirates. I'm going to give you the Cardinals. I'll even give you the Reds for that matter, but I don't think the Reds are going to do anything. You know what? Scratch the Reds. I I can't give them any 
DAP because I expect them to fall apart here slowly but surely. Cardinals is based on their history. And then out west, I got to include Arizona here with the Dodgers. I'm not going to include San Francisco. I know they're in third place and ahead of the Padres by three games. And the Padres, do I even X them out here on May 29th? I won't do so. Only because they made it to the postseason last year and they had their run. They went to an NLCS and there's still plenty of time. If this was the 4th of July, I may, or the the All-Star break, I may go out on a limb and scratch them off. Because if it's not going to click in the next month and a half, when is it going to click? And I understand sometimes you get these runs out of nowhere. The Colorado Rockies of 2007 when they ended their season winning, what, 21 of 22 before getting swept by the Red Sox in the World Series? It has happened when these teams have these runs. Understood. But for whatever the reason, the mix isn't there in San Diego. And I don't know what or why. No rhyme or reason. Is it too many egos? Is it they think they're going to flick the switch because of all the talent that they have on, on their team? I don't know. But I have to include them. So when it's all said and done in the American League and I understand the Central uh, because the only one team's going to come out of there. But you have right now 11 teams in the American League that are alive. And this is just for playoff spots. Not predicting who's going to win a division or who's going to get a wild card spot. But you have 11 teams there. All five in the AL East, three in the Central, and three in the West. I'm not including the Angels. And in the National League, I think you have nine. Three in East Division. Atlanta, the Mets, Phillies, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, LA, Arizona, San Diego. I know I'm not including the Giants. I get that. Or even the Marlins, like I mentioned. So I think you have 20 of the 30 teams that right now are either pretenders or contenders. And that's a lot for baseball, as we know how top-heavy it is and the competitive balance, etc. But as we get to this point, let's see where this leads into as we get into the month of June, into officially summer, and deep into the summer as we will revisit this come the All-Star break and see where we're at at that time. All right, now let me get to some tennis here. Because the second Grand Slam of the year has begun. Roland Garros, the French Open. And the first storyline, right out of the bat, is Novak Djokovic and his quest for the number one all-time men's singles leader in the sports history as he's currently tied with Rafael Nadal. And we know Nadal's not going to be there because of the hip injury. He's not going to play at all in 2023. In fact, his last year will be next year in 2024. So I'm sure we'll see him down in Australia for the Australian Open there in late January of next year. But he is the main story because, obviously, chasing history, number one. Number two, the field is, I'm not going to say barren. I won't go as far as saying that, but you have no Nadal. You have no Andy Murray, who I understand is on the back end of his career. You have no Matteo Berrettini, who a lot of people think he could be on the come up here. No Nick Kyrgios, who has had a very good year, but he's out with a foot injury. And not only that, but the men's draw, in which I'm sure everybody was hoping that you'd have Novak Djokovic won, and on the other side of the draw would be Carlos Alcaraz. 
Instead, they're on the same side of the draw where they could potentially meet in a semifinal, which is what the tennis and I'm sure the sports fan did not want to see. Because if anything, you'd want to see those two go at it in a men's final. Alcaraz, the up-and-coming talent who we think will take tennis by storm, he's the guy that is going to carry this torch from Nadal, Roger Federer, and Novak Djokovic. Although Djokovic is going to be here, I would think, for a few more years. But that old guard versus the new, and that would have just been a wonderful storyline if it happened to unfold that way to where you'd have both Djokovic and Alcaraz go up against one another for a final. And they've never met on any surface in any tournament, especially a Grand Slam, ever. So that's what would have made it more intriguing for them to play each other in a final as opposed to a semifinal. So that's one negative there, if you ask me. But the... Men's side, to me, it's Djokovic and everybody else. Now, I get it that you still have Alcaraz out there. You still have guys like Andre Rublev, Daniel Medvedev, Alexander Zverev, other guys like Kasper Ruud who's played well here in some of these tournaments leading up to the French. Yannick Sinner, who is also a young guy on the come up. Stefano Tsitsipas, who's also played pretty well in these tournaments, but you can't trust him in big spots. So you have guys that maybe could throw... A couple of things at Djokovic, but I think he's going to be raring to go. He's going to be just hoping to get to that final to where he could be number one all time. Djokovic, as we all know, he's a machine. And I really truly believe he is the odds on favor to win this whole thing. Now, I would hope that throughout this journey or throughout this tournament that we could get another guy to give him a run for his money because you don't want to see Djokovic winning in straight sets left and right in order for him to get, let's say, to a semifinal. You want him to sweat a little bit. You want him to get to some four and five set matches, maybe be down 2-1 going into the fourth set. You don't want to see that. You don't want to see Djokovic steamroll to get to a semifinal or even to a final where it's going to be an afterthought on whether or not he's going to come away with his, I believe he's got two French Opens in his back pocket. I know he has one. And for him to win another one and that 23rd all-time, you want to have some competition or at least let him sweat a little bit before he gets to a semifinal or final and we'll see where the chips fall at that time. As far as the women's side, to me, I know Iga Swiatek has played very well here over the course of the last couple of years and you would think she's going to be the favorite going in. Of course, you have no Naomi Osaka. Serena's not here as we know. Samola Halep, who's had all these issues with suspensions for doping the second time around. And even though she claims her innocence, saying that she's a victim of contamination, but she has to deal with that at the moment. So you're not going to see her there. We get it that you got a lot of good young players there, whether it's Coco Goff to see if she could take the next step. Jessica Pagula, who's also made some runs here, not to a final or winning a final, but has done very well. And maybe it's a name that we could look out for. I know Madison Keys is another one. Anj Jabour, who has made it to back-to-back finals, whether it was at the French and in Wimbledon. Let's see if she's able to get herself to a final and win. So I think it's a little bit more wide open. Arena Sabalenka is another one that we have to look out for. Even also Elena Rabakina. I was saying her name wrong. I used to say Rabakina, but from what I've watched there is Rabakina. But you can say Rabakina, Rabakina is tomato, tomato. But I think the women is wide open, although Swiatek, I would think he'd be your favorite here to win the tournament. But I'm going to go on Jabour only because I feel that 
although Swiatek is probably the best female player in the world or women's player in the world, but Jabor has come close. I know in the U.S. Open, she was bouncing the first round. So, and this was going back last year. Or as a matter of fact, even during the Australian, she was bounced because I actually predicted for her to win that. And I may have my tournaments mixed up. I believe she was a finalist at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open before losing in the first round to the Australian. So I got that all mixed up. I just had to move it up one. So I'm going to pick Jabour to win, but I can see Switek making a deep run and winning a French. I can certainly see that. And now that we got the second Grand Slam on and popping, let's see how this is going to shake down here over the course of the next two weeks, as we know, as we sink our teeth into another sport and another champion, which will be crowned here two weeks from yesterday. A couple of quickies I want to get into. NFL and Indy 500. DeAndre Hopkins was released, and I know it's going to be a big cap hit for the Arizona Cardinals. Where he lands is going to be the big question mark because there was a lot of rumors that he was going to go to Baltimore to team up with Odell Beckham Jr. and now Lamar Jackson. So let's see if they're going to be on the phone to bring in Hopkins to go along with OBJ. And if that's going to be the case, and as stated last week by the Ravens, as they're going to incorporate Lamar more of a passing threat than a running threat, And that can be a little bit dangerous because although he's won an MVP and although he's put up good numbers and I know the analytics say that he's done well with his QBR and all this other stuff, uh uh-uh. To me, it's eye test, as everybody knows. And if Lamar is going to drop back and throw 35, 40 passes a game, that's going to be dangerous. His accuracy isn't great. And I understand you can say that for a lot of guys in the league, understood. But we haven't seen on a week-in, week-out basis... And not just in September and October, but when we get into the deeper end of the pool in November, December, and especially January, can you really trust? And we haven't really seen it. So until we see it and really get a full grasp of it, but I have to say from the surface, I have to see it to believe it. And I don't know if I could trust Lamar Jackson to be the guy that's going to drop back in the pocket like Dan Fouts and throw the ball all over the lot with consistency, with accuracy, etc. And for them to get to the Super Bowl or to heights as a Super Bowl, considering the amount of money that he signed for and now that he may get these weapons, as it is, he does have a security blanket with a one Mark Andrews, but if you also include OBJ and then now DeAndre Hopkins, who knows? But I, right now, and I get it's way too early and you still haven't even gotten into OTAs and training camp, etc. to get reps, and if I'm Lamar Jackson, if they do bring in DeAndre Hopkins within the next week, they better meet somewhere and start practicing off-site. Because Lamar Jackson, this is going to be a huge year for him. And it's not just based on the money and also his health, but knowing that they're going to implement more passing into this offense, as we all know, for the first five years of his career, it's been all about their ground game, their offensive line, their running game, and him scrambling everywhere to get chunks of yards to open up the passing game, where now this is going to be the other way around. This is going to be one to watch if you ask me. And I don't know. I'll say it right now, I am dubious to say the least that Lamar is going to be as successful as his counterparts just in the conference alone, whether your name is Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, etc. So we'll see what happens there with Hopkins if he does make his way to Baltimore and what that means for the Ravens moving forward. And then the other thing is this Le'Veon Bell story that came out yesterday about him smoking weed before games and 
had some very unflattering things to say about Adam Gaze and the Jets. How even though the Jets weren't a good team, but if Mike Tomlin was the coach there, they would have won nine games. And that may be right. Based on Tomlin's history of not having a season where he's been under 500. But for him to come out smoking weed, is that something? All right, is it a revelation? Is that something we should be surprised? Is this Doc Ellis taking LSD before a game that he pitched or before that no-hitter that he threw when he was a member of the Pirates? Looked that up going back to what, 1971? I don't want to go as far as that, but to me, that's a non-story. All right, so he said, oh, I rushed for 150 yards and three touchdowns when I was high. All right, good for him. Kudos. But we all know his career was in a tailspin once he took that year off, and that was his right. He wanted to get the money, and he did. He went to the Jets, and we know what happened. And Adam Gaze, to me, that is slim pickings when it comes to attacking him because nobody's going to confuse Adam Gaze with Vince Lombardi or even Weeb Eubank, for that matter. Look him up. So... To me, that's just like taking candy away from a baby, picking on Adam Gaze there while he was a member of the Jets and he was the head coach. But he's going to say what he says. I just bring it up because it's more comical to me by him coming out and saying this. This isn't anything that's a, oh, earth shattering. Oh, wow, he was high. Oh, oh, please. But I just had to throw it out there because Bell and me being a huge Steeler fan, he played for my team and knowing that he was high when he was on, when he played in some of these games. All right, good for you, my guy, whatever, but... Since that came out yesterday, I thought to throw that in there. And then lastly, the Indy 500 was yesterday, and I talked about that on Thursday, how that was just a huge event to kick off summer over the Memorial Day weekend, how it's always performed there that Sunday at the Indianapolis Raceway or Speedway. And as it was, your winner is Joseph Newgarden. First time he's won in 12 opportunities, so congratulations to him on winning the Indy 500. And again, it's not the same specter that it was back in the day. If you didn't listen to the podcast the other day, I talked about how that event was so huge. And again, this is before the internet. This is before everything that we have in our fingertips right now. But considering that whomever won that race that last Sunday of the month was going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated that Thursday. So obviously it's a different world. Sports Illustrated comes out once a month. The Indy 500 is pretty much an afterthought when we look at the landscape of sports, but considering how much it meant to me as a boy, not that I was in front on a Sunday afternoon watching the Indy 500, but coming back and forth from playing baseball outside or punch ball, stoop ball, etc. And I would come in and say, hey, who's winning the race? All right, great. And then find out who won. I followed it. And to top that all off, I had the old AFX racetrack where I was able to put that together and watch that go round and round for minutes at a time. So yes, there is a connection or correlation between me as a boy and the Indy 500, and not to say that I'm an expert or an aficionado, to say the least, but I have to give it its due. So I did, and congratulations to Newgarden for winning the greatest spectacle in all of racing, as it has been dubbed here over the course of however many years it's been. And now doing my good people, another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for participating, carving out some time to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday, or if you're listening to this well after the holiday, I hope you did enjoy it to the fullest. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review one more time. I'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to follow me on any of my socials, you could do so at the following on YouTube at Reels. 
on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just the number. And if you want to send me a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Whatever you want to put forth, I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to this endeavor. The upkeep of the website, the equipment, anything and everything to make this experience into the microphone through your headphones, earbuds, or speakers that much more enjoyable, pleasurable, entertaining, informative. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. Sports has been in the blood since day one. As I say, in the blood, in the DNA, with nothing but fire, passion, fury, energy, with my thoughts, opinions, feelings, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>